KPFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadow Out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, May 30th, 2006. Yesterday was Memorial Day. All day, 24-7. All those hours to remember the dead and the wounded. Now, let's see. World War II pretty much shattered my father. The Korean War dehumanized the lover I had hopes for. Vietnam crippled my brother for life, but let's not be negative. Not everyone dies. More of us eat than starve. More are well than sick. And I can turn off the media and ignore Memorial Day. (laughs) Yes. Our species is so successful. There are so many of us, you know. Uh, We're so successful. We're suicidal. From two billion when I was born to six and a half billion, Al Gore tells us, right. All this war and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's just a blip on the screen. Because every day when we get up, there's about 250,000 more people than there were the day before. 92 million a year. (laughs) I heard Al Gore just as I was leaving home today to catch the bus and come to KPFA. It blew my mind and everything else I was thinking about. Al Gore was being interviewed by Terry Gross on NPR about his new movie and book about global warming. And I thought, wow, you know, electoral politics is coming at us again. Let's forget everything and get back to, get back to the dumb stuff. Uh, the title of Al's movie and book is An Inconvenient Truth. And it's just about to burst upon us. Uh, leave it to Al to attempt understatement. Yes, an inconvenient truth, really, instead of just, you know, titling it, help. Anyway, I thought maybe it's the editor who picked the title. But Al Gore is still Al Gore. Terry Gross asked him how he was doing these days. And he actually said laughingly that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I believe that's uh, Frederick Nietzsche (laughs) or or Conan the Barbarian. Yes, Conan the Barbarian quoting Nietzsche. That's the last time I saw that quote in the movies, yes. Al Gore, such an interesting guy. Um, 
Terry Gross told him that the critics seem to feel that he has loosened up, that is, um, in this film, that he's easygoing and more fun in this documentary. And what did he think about that? And he said, well, he probably benefits from low expectations. Personally, I like Al Gore, but like Adlai Stevenson, he he may only appeal to eggheads and scholars of, I don't know what it takes to be president of the United States. Just think, if you were Al Gore or John Kerry, for that matter, and you had to look at the present um, selected president of the United States and uh, get up and eat your breakfast. Yes, think about that. What if you had run for president and George Bush had been elected? How would you feel? Anyway, I haven't read Al Gore's new book, but as I was going out the door, I grabbed the book he published back in 1992. It was just in time for that election that year. I remember carrying it around, waving it at people, and everybody said, Oh, Al Gore, I don't know nothing anyway. I remember thinking that he was an eco-feminist at the time. Uh, at the same time, most people, uh, I don't know why, uh, what was it, uh, the, what is that aversion to Al Gore? I wish, if anybody out there knows, write me a letter and tell me, and maybe we could talk about it on the air. I have the same worries about Hillary Clinton. You know, in our search for perfection, we miss the good. I, I would like to know why it is that, um, those of us on the left, whether we're, uh, orthodox radicals or whether we're just Democrats, why it is we're so much more demanding of our own, our own, uh, what is it, candidates or our, uh, what is it, further to the left than to the right folks, yes. Why are we so quick to demonize these folks instead of starting with the, uh, uh, the demons on the other side, yes. Anyway, I was reading this book years ago and I've marked it up like the enthusiastic Little girl I was then, 10, 14 years ago, yes. Al Gore, God bless him, he goes all the way back to the beginning. Let me read you just a little bit. Of course, he's pedantic as they come. I wish he weren't such a... Well, I don't know what's wrong with being a stuffed shirt. Why not be a stuffed shirt? He has a terrific chapter on environmentalism of the spirit. He says the worst form of pollution is a wasted life, a wasted uh, spirit. He says, The spiritual sense of our place in nature predates Native American cultures. Increasingly, it can be traced to the origins of human civilization. A growing number of anthropologists and archaeomythologists, such as Maria Gembutas and Rianne Eisler, argue that the prevailing ideology of belief in prehistoric Europe and much of the world was based on the worship of a single earth goddess who was assumed to be the font of all life and who radiated harmony among all living things. Now note that I'm reading to you from Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, Ecology and the Human Spirit published in 1992, written by then-Senator Al Gore. He goes on to state, 
much of the evidence for the existence of this primitive religion comes from the many thousands of artifacts uncovered in ceremonial sites. These sites are so widespread that they seem to confirm the notion that a goddess religion was ubiquitous throughout much of the world until the antecedents of today's religions, most of which still have a distinctly masculine orientation, swept out of India and the Near East, almost obliterating belief in the goddess. The last vestige of organized goddess worship was eliminated by Christianity as late as the 15th century in Lithuania. The antiquity of the evidence and the elaborate and imaginative analysis used to interpret the artifacts leave much room for skepticism about our ability to know exactly what this belief system or collection of related beliefs taught. Its best documented tenant seems to have been a reverence for the sacredness of the earth, belief in the need for harmony among all living things, and on and on and on, folks, come on, you know. As the prophet Muhammad said, the world is green and beautiful, and God has appointed you to be his stewards over it. I remember at one point Al Gore said that he thought maybe the greens, the uh, environmentalists, ecologists, could make common cause with some of the Christian, um, he didn't say evangelicals, but some of the uh, uh, folks who believe in Christian stewardship, what we used to call husbandry. Yes, you want a good husband, someone to take care of the farm, you know, to um, care for things. Uh, <laughs> yes, a husband, think about that. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff here about how the Buddha felt about it. And let's see. Here's what Al Gore says went wrong a little bit, you know. He says that we separated the facts from our values, you know, the infernal machine. Uh, what makes Nazis, I always say, the Nazi ideal would be to cover the world with cement. A couple of nights ago I was watching a documentary on Joseph Goebbels. And, uh, what is it? Yes, clean the world, scrub everything down to the bone. Complete order and authoritarianism, absolute control. In other words, uh, he, Joseph Goebbels, wanted to play God or be God, in indeed, yes. Uh, what is that will to power? Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, Al writes, tragically, since the onset of the scientific and technological revolution, it has seemingly become all too easy for ultra-rational minds to create an elaborate edifice of clockwork efficiency capable of nightmarish cruelty on the industrial scale, on an industrial scale. The atrocities of Hitler and Stalin and the mechanical sins of all those who helped them might have been inconceivable except for the separation of facts from values, and knowledge from morality. There you go. I have a footnote here. I remember being a schoolgirl and being told that you could not know the truth, you see, and not act accordingly. <laughs> Nowadays, 
Everybody knows everything. That doesn't seem to have much effect on the behavior anyway. Let's see. He goes on about the great Hannah Arendt, a philosopher. In her study of Adolf Eichmann, he who organized the death camp bureaucracy, Hannah Arendt coined the memorable phrase, the banality of evil, to describe the bizarre contrast between the humdrum and ordinary quality of the acts themselves, the thousands of small routine tasks committed by workaday bureaucrats, and the horrific and satanic quality of their proximate consequences. It was precisely this machine-like efficiency of the system that carried out the genocide which seemed to make it possible for its functionaries to separate the thinking required in their daily work from the moral sensibility for which, because they were human beings, they must have had some capacity. <laughs> yes, he's talking about the I just followed orders people, um, you remember. Uh, Yes, in the old days, throw your, throw your body on the machine, throw your body on the machine. Oh, those days need to come again. This mysterious vacant space in the soul, writes L, between thinking and feeling is the suspected site of the inner crime. He means the crimes of the spirit. This barrenness of the spirit rendered fallow by the blood of unkempt Unkept brothers is the precinct of the disembodied intellect, which knows the way things work, but not the way they are. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Once again, I remember seeing a film. I was watching it carefully because I remember my father was out there. It was a documentary about the islands in the Pacific where they were testing the atom bomb after World War II. And... Uh, the women on the islands who, of course, uh, had to leave their homes and could never go back because they were poisoned forever. They said, oh, these Americans came and they were so smart they could do anything if they only knew what to be smart about. Al Gore goes on to say, it is my view that the underlying moral schism that contributed to these extreme manifestations of evil has also conditioned our civilization to insulate its conscience from any responsibility for the collective endeavors that invisibly link millions of small, silent, banal acts and omissions together in a pattern of terrible cause and effect. There you go, folks. Uh-huh. Another footnote. I was thinking about the things that I don't recycle. Never mind. The sins, the sins of omission. Um... Uh, Yes, the separation of thinking and feeling, says Al. If it weren't for this separation of thinking and feeling, we might not tolerate the deaths every day of 37,000 children under the age of five from starvation and preventable diseases made worse by failures of crops and failures of politics. Yes, I don't know. Whether it's 37,000, I suppose the number has gone up. The body count continues to rise. He speaks of, yes, what we, what we can say to our future generations. 
and about modern philosophy going so far in its absurd pretensions about the separateness of human beings from nature as to ask the famous question, if a tree falls in the forest and no person is there to hear it, does it make a sound right? And if robotic chainsaws finally destroy all the rainforests on earth, and if the people who set them in motion are far enough away so that they can't hear the crash of the trees on the naked forest floor, does it matter? <laughs> Al is right, yes. They have a mouth but will not speak, eyes but will not see, nostrils but will not smell. They have hands but they will not feel. Lost awareness of the sacred, this absence of emotion, the banal face of evil manifested by mass technological assaults on the global environment is surely a consequence of the belief in an underlying separation from the physical world, yes. At the root of this belief lies a heretical misunderstanding of humankind's place in the world as old as Plato. Oh, I'm so glad Al Gore's got it in for Plato. I always did, but my professors would get very angry with me. <laughs> I never found logic to be logical at all. Uh, he goes on to say that Native American religions, for instance, offer a rich tapestry of ideas about our relationship to the earth. And he uh, talks about Chief Seattle back in 1855 when President Pierce, uh, Franklin Pierce, stated that he would buy, that is, purchase for cash, the land of Chief Seattle's tribe. The power of Chief Seattle's response has survived numerous translations and retellings. Uh, how can you buy or sell the sky, the land? The idea is strange to us. This is Chief Seattle writing to the prayers. If we do not own the freshness of the air and the sparkle of the water, how can you buy them? Every part of this earth is sacred to my people, every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, every mist in the dark woods, every meadow, every humming insect. All are holy in the memory and experience of my people. If we sell you our land, remember that the air is precious to us, that the air shares its spirit with all the life it supports. The wind that gave our grandfather his first breath received his last sigh. The wind also gives our children the spirit of life. So, if we sell you our land, you must keep it apart and sacred, a place where man can go to taste the wind that is sweetened by the meadow flowers. Will you teach your children what we have taught our children, that the earth is our mother, what befalls the earth befalls all the sons of the earth? This we know, the earth does not belong to man. Man belongs to the earth. All things are connected like the blood that unites us all. Man does not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. 
One thing we know: our God is also your God. The earth is precious to Him, and to harm the earth is to heap contempt on its Creator. And Al has inserted here many prayers to the Great Spirit. A number of things. Remember, I'm reading to you from. Al Gore's first book, "Earth in the Balance: Ecology and the Human Spirit." This one, I'm sure, you can get in the library. Houghton Mifflin is the publisher. I've still got my hardback, and I think it's very useful. I'm sure、uh, his new book concentrates on global warming. This one、uh, covers a whole bunch of things. Just really, the whole ecological nightmare that we're facing. Let me look in the index to give you some idea, in case you wanted to get the the book.、Uh, there's a lot of stuff, of course, on population control. I don't want to read you that because people call me up and get angry.、Um, <laughs> it's so difficult.、Uh, it's of course racist to talk about uh, uh, controlling population. It's so difficult.、Um, Let me think. He says here. He says here that Mahatma Gandhi is probably the best person to look for in terms of advocating change. He says that Mahatma Gandhi's statement is that we must be the change we see in the world. I used to have a big poster in my classroom that said "Be the dream." Some of my kids found it a little corny.、Uh, yes, my favorite for the children actually is a movie called Crocodile Dundee. Believe it or not, it's got a little ecology in it. Someone, in, a European in the film, suggests that someone buy land from the Aborigines, and uh, 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 Crocodile Dundee says that's like two fleas. Two fleas fighting over the dog they eat on, live on, and depend on for their sustenance.、Uh, mm-hmm. We have to do it ourselves. Gandhi, we are told, was approached one day by a woman who was deeply concerned that her son ate too much sugar. She said, "I am worried about his health. He respects you very much. Would you be willing to tell him about the harmful effects?" Suggest that he stop eating sugar.、Mm-hmm. After reflecting on this request, Gandhi told the woman he would do as she requested, but ask that she bring her son back in two weeks, no sooner. So, in two weeks, when the boy and his mother returned, Gandhi spoke with him and suggested that he stop eating sugar. When the boy complied with Gandhi's suggestion, his mother thanked Gandhi extravagantly. But then she asked him why he had insisted on the two-week interval. Well, he replied, because I needed the two weeks to stop eating sugar myself. <laughs> Al goes on to say, Al Gore, I've tried to confront in my own life the ill habits of thought and action that I'm attempting to understand. Okay, yes, this is it. Between the thought and the action falls the shadow, boys and girls. I have thought about this all my life.、Uh, I'm rotten to the core. Uh, Al writes, "I'm very impatient with my own tendency to put a finger to the political winds and to proceed cautiously." 
He writes, the voice of caution whispers persuasively in the ear of every politician and often with good reason. There you go, you see. That's the trouble with Al. He has second thoughts. Bush has no thoughts at all, so there's no problem. I just loved it when President Bush, President Bush, Mr. Bush the other day said uh, that he thought that perhaps he wasn't uh, talking sophisticated enough, you know, wasn't talking sophisticated because he said, bring him on and dead or alive, that kind of thing. Uh, oh, it is, it is to wonder. It's the psychology, stupid. Uh, Al goes on to talk about various situations in the world in which ecological disasters were a result of human error. But, of course, nothing uh, that's like the scale we have today. There was the little ice age, and then there was Ireland. There's a whole bunch of stuff here on the Gulf Stream that absolutely terrifies me. Uh, and, yes, he talks about Ethiopia, the loss of forests, uh, and most of all, I like his, let's call them his metaphors, his analogies with the so-called dysfunctional family. We have dysfunctional nations. You know, the sort of thing where uh, it is that we fall into these habits. We become addicted to things that are bad for us. He says, addiction is distraction. He says, ah... Uh, Resolving high blood pressure is easier than resolving deep psychological conflicts. Most people respond to psychic pain the way they respond to any pain. Rather than confront the source, they recoil and find ways to escape. Right. Addiction, distraction, we're used to thinking in terms of drugs or alcohol. But new studies have deepened our understanding we can be addicted to just about anything these days. Uh, I figured out once when I was about 50 that I was addicted to failure. It was a much more comfortable uh, position to be in. Uh, then Al gets to the heart of the matter. He says, the cleavage in the modern world between mind and body, between man and nature has created a new kind of addiction. I believe that our civilization is, in effect, addicted to the consumption of the earth itself. We are addicted to the consumption of the earth itself. Hmm. Anyway, he has another chapter or two on dysfunctional civilization. I think of Freud's civilization, yes, being disloyal to civilization, that's the one about women. We're paying the price with the loss of our spiritual lives. He talks about shopping. That's another addiction that I acquired, oh, about eight years ago. I can only shop in thrift stores, but uh, I had never shopped before. But at some point I found that, you know, picking up little bits of scraps of things was a distraction. I don't know whether it's the advertising that gets to us. Who knows? Anyway, you know how it is. We're all illusion factories. And uh, he, he writes, Why do we assume that it's so natural, that it's natural and normal 
for our per capita consumption of natural resources to increase every year. Someone said recently, they said um, that uh, growth for its own sake uh, is the ideology of a cancer cell. He says the promise, the promise that the addiction has is always false because the hunger for authenticity remains. Then he goes on about enablers and the psychological mechanism of denial. Uh, and then he goes on to tell us that too many of us are saying that we think it's too late. And he gives us very good reasons to think that perhaps uh, that's not true. <laughs> Finally, he gets to Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 to talk about Cody's bookstore closing. I've been uh, reading to you from Earth in the Balance by Al Gore, Ecology and the Human Spirit. Al has a new book out and a movie called An Inconvenient Truth, all about global warming. And let's keep our fingers crossed it helps. Till next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Our spring fund drive was a great success and raised $951,000. We extend special appreciation to our generous community of listeners, phone room volunteers, and our dedicated programmers and staff. Our comprehensive package of special gifts will be available for another week at 